Support for The Trend comes from members of the Local Programming Fund. I'm Micah Schweitzer. We begin today's show by hearing about what happens when residents, service providers, and community investors team up to renew and revitalize a core city neighborhood. Lori Reed is the executive director of Habitat for Humanity of Evansville, and that was the lead organizer for the Glenwood Community Development Initiative started back in 2008. Welcome. Thank you. And uh, I want to Go back to 2008, uh, Habitat was looking at the Glenwood neighborhood at that point because you had some land there and you were looking at building some houses there. And that's what Habitat for Humanity does is build houses. And then this ballooned into a much larger mission. Take us back to 2008 and and how this process began. Sure. Um, Actually, I'm going to take you back just a, a year earlier. Habitat was engaged in disaster recovery effort in New Haven on the east side of Evansville. And um, the level of philanthropy after disaster is tremendous. It's um, much higher than when we're addressing longer-term needs for a community. And I was driving around in, in, the neighborhood, in our core city neighborhoods with that project kind of in full swing and you know, really wondering if, if we could take that same energy and transfer that into a core center, center city neighborhood, could we really do this and and revitalize a neighborhood even without a disaster to rally people correct yeah that 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 was the idea okay so and you did succeed at rallying people how um i I think that that core concept really resonated with people we knew that we chose glenwood because we had some property a, a good deal of property there and the school corporation was going to invest in that school so we just began to talk to people about this idea of you know if we all come together and we make this more than just about habitat houses and this is about the community that we're going to build with the neighborhood residents in a way that they want to see us um, work here what, what could happen and lots of people bought into that idea what was that neighborhood like at the time? Um, Glenwood had a lot of strengths at the time. The school was a strength. Um, there's a pocket of home ownership on the west side that was a real strength. Um, and then there were, like any other neighborhood, there were some weaknesses, um, particularly in core center neighborhoods where the housing stock is older. You get some blighted vacant houses, and those can be hosts for criminal activity and and uh, rodents of all things. <laughs> so, you know, there was, there was a significant amount of that that people that lived there were concerned about. So safety, crime, appearance, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, access to decent shelter, um, appearance of the neighborhood, condition of the sidewalks, you know, those typical things people care about. That's a lot to bite off to, to address all of those things. Uh, I have to chuckle about that because it is, and I I think we were just dumb enough to think that we could actually do it. (laughs) (laughs) So it was born out of naivety. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So so you convened a whole group of people, um, and most importantly, the people who live there were Mm -hmm. involved. Talk about their involvement. We started with the people that live there. We actually interviewed key stakeholders outside of the neighborhood to see if this idea could get some traction. And once we determined, indeed, we had a lot of support for it, we started by um, scientifically really polling and interviewing the neighborhood residents that lived there um, to ensure that we were honoring and respecting what it was that they wanted to have happen in their neighborhood. And from that process, the University of Southern Indiana did that and uh, some focus group sessions and surveys. And through that process and participating in that and just observing, we were able to build some relationships with people that lived there. 
um, Lucy Williams in particular, was the Neighborhood Association president. And without her, we wouldn't have accomplished everything that we have today so and we should say we were hoping to have her on the show but a but a scheduling conflict came up so she uh, is a busy yeah, lady she's busy. <laughs> um was there anything that came out of those focus groups and those studies that surprised you that you thought huh i, I wouldn't have guessed that that's what they wanted um yes and it, one of the number one things they were concerned about um were, were these vacant properties and i i would have guessed Yes, they're, uh, the neighborhood residents are concerned because they're hosts for criminal activity and they're they're not very pretty to look at. But they, in every focus group session, people noted that they were um, hosts for rodents, and that was a concern. So that was a, something that surprised me. So, so rodent population was a specific issue. <laughs> that's that, that's kind of a humorous one. Yeah, yeah. Another one would be um, I sat through all but one of the focus group sessions, and I think we had about 10 of those. And people would were not required to say where they lived, but they, there were pockets of um, really strong community, even within this uh, broader community called Glenwood, pockets that were really strong, and then pockets that were um, people were less hopeful hmm. for the future. And I found that very interesting. Did those people come around? Um. Indeed, I think the results of this evaluation really indicate that people, the pride in the neighborhood and their hope for the future has in, improved, yeah. And that's this uh, study, this five-year evaluation report uh, of the Glenwood Community Development Initiative. And so you've gone back, um, and again, this is all, you've done done these scientific surveys again. Um, you've gone back and polled people on what they, the changes they see. And I guess uh, you report that 38% of the respondents indicate the neighborhood has changed a great deal, 41 say it's changed somewhat, and then 23% say very little or not at all. So that's, um, that's what 78% of residents there say, yes, they're seeing changes. Absolutely. Um, and this we established a baseline in 2008. So we did this exact survey um, in 2008, and then we redid the survey Actually, a third party did this, redid the survey um, in 2010. So we were able to see some significant change. I mean, statistically significant improvements in right. some areas. And, and you have you have uh, six different areas listed. Um, obviously, the one that pertains most directly to you is this idea of housing and infrastructure. And um, talk a bit about the the process that you undertook to improve housing and inf infrastructure in that neighborhood. Um, I we saw improvement in housing and infrastructure, health and wellness and education were the places where we saw the needle move. So if I talk about process for housing, I really have to talk about process for all those things. Mm -hmm. um, we went through a series of community discussions um, over actually a two-year period. We did the surveys and then the community discussions, a design charrette, and it was really a strategic planning effort where residents and then the leaders of institutions that would invest in the neighborhood came together and we created a neighborhood strategic plan. Um, and housing was just one component of that. And indeed, people wanted habitat there. And, and we just did our thing uh, that we would have done in any other neighborhood that we owned land. We would build and uh, we did a few things that were uh, extra. And one of those things is we had a um, 
design competition for an existing block where we were going to build new and do some rehab and and so forth. And that was a lot of fun, and I think it generated interest. But we just did our deal like we always do. Hmm. But that means that now there's infill, and and you're doing, and you've done this in other places too, at that at, at New Haven, most notably, where you've done these cluster builds. So instead uh -huh. of one house, you know, just on a block somewhere, and then another house somewhere, you know, a mile, two miles away, you're you're actually building neighborhoods. Indeed. Um, before Glenwood ever started, uh, the USI did a study on our impact in neighborhoods, and from that we learned that when we concentrate our building efforts, we actually have a higher um, impact on the individual homeowners and the surrounding neighborhood. So we, M Morton Avenue, where we had the design competition, was an effort where we had infill properties, but we're gonna pre we were gonna focus our activity of building infill all in one one place. If that makes any <laughs> sense at all. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. Instead of these scattered houses, right. you're, you're filling in a block. So now there's a complete block. Mm -hmm. Many of many of the houses on the block are habitat houses. Yes, and and. Um, more than half are existing homeowner-occupied units that have gotten a little bit of attention. I see. Well. So you're working with existing structures um, as well. Actually, we tried that, and then Community One, which is a, a brand new CDC, they have picking, uh, taken up that work of doing existing homeowner-occupied um, rehabbing and repair work, which is fantastic. And that really was born out of um, Crossroads' uh, participation in the Glenwood uh, neighborhood effort. We're talking about neighborhood revitalization, and we'll have more after a break. You're listening to The Trend. You're with The Trend on 88.3 WNIN and WNIN.org. Coming up, a brand new recipe from The Hungry Hoosier and why doctors are making house calls again. That's all trending today on WNIN. Support today comes from Tin Man Brewing Company, announcing their locally brewed beer varieties in cans and on draft are now available in local stores and locations. More information available at tinmanbrewing.com. This is The Trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer. We're talking with Lori Reed from Habitat for Humanity of Evansville about the Glenwood Community Development Initiative, and we're looking at a new five-year evaluation report that uh, came out a little bit earlier this year. Um, and before we get into some of the specifics in that report, Lori, I want to ask you if uh, Habitat experienced any mission creep through this process, because you went from being an organization that's about building houses, you know, affordable housing that people can buy and, and live in, to revamping a whole neighborhood, being involved in a much bigger project? That is an excellent question. And, and I, I would say, yes, we did. And we've actually responded to that. We will, we, we've responded by, in our strategic plan, saying um, we're committed to this work 
we have to find another institution that is freer and better equipped to scale up these types of efforts. Habitat will continue to advocate and work in the con and be a leader in housing in the context of community development. But we really do, as a region and as a city, need an organization that sees the value in this, but can do more of it and do it better um, than we have. Need an organization, so there isn't one. Um, we we are having some conversations with a couple of organizations um, that we think would be great. It's just going to take a while. I think to, uh, to 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 see how that plays out in in our area. And and the next area of focus you're going to be building in the Jacobsville neighborhood, mm -hmm. um, a little bit north of downtown, and I guess you're at the table there for a similar project uh, like mm -hmm. you did in in Glenwood. But now you're just at the table. You're not the convening organization. Correct. We are partners at the table, and we're fully supportive, and we'll we'll do housing the best we can in Jacobsville. But um, Echo Housing is actually acting as the lead convener pulling all the different parties together and really leading the whole effort. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a bit about this report and, uh, and, and what people said about what's changed in Glenwood. And uh, we mentioned that housing and infrastructure is, is one of the areas, and you talked a bit about that. Um, another one is education, and I guess that's been a huge uh, success story for Glenwood because mm -hmm. the Glenwood Leadership Academy, the school that's there, has really become a focal point for that neighborhood. Absolutely. Um, why I find this so exciting is um, specifically around education where we saw a statistically significant improvement is adults reporting that they're using the school for their own needs. And that's important because 20% of the adult population over the age of 25 in Glenwood does not have a high school diploma or an equivalent. Um, in Jacobsville, for instance, it's 30% um, of the adult population over the age of 25. So for that community asset, that school, to be utilized by the full community um, is really important. And over time, um, this is a long-term effort, over time, hopefully we see improvement in that statistic because of that school. How are they using the school? Oh, that's a good question. I, there's a um, exercise equipment, there's meeting space, there's access to the gym. The USI has a full-service health clinic there that's accessible to uh, to the students and adults there in the neighborhood. So those are just a few of the ways. Yeah, that health care was a, a big area too. So health and well-being was also one of the areas that you were working on improving. Mm -hmm. What was the issue? Um, two things, really. The built environment, uh, access to places to exercise. Uh, you can say, you know, the condition of the sidewalks wasn't conducive to outdoor, um, you know, just going outside to enjoy life. And then also access to healthy foods like fresh fruits and vegetables. So the Welburn Baptist Foundation jumped into that area. And we saw some significant improvements um, that you can see with your eyes. And then this these uh, surveys have confirmed that the, everything from the community garden effort to they worked with a local store owner to make it economically feasible for him to have fresh produce in his um, corner market. And then they, they started in a farmer's market there. So so the, the survey really confirms that those things indeed are valuable to the people that live in the neighborhood and they see them as a positive change. Yeah, a term we've heard quite a bit over the past few years, I guess now, is this idea of a food desert where, where all you have access to is, you know, soda and, and you know, junk food, basically, like at convenience stores, because there's not an actual grocery store in many neighborhoods. 
Yeah, we saw that in the initial uh, focus group sessions we did back in 2008 and the surveys. We heard that uh, one of the primary things they'd like, the people that live there would like to see is, is a grocery store. Well, in a, in a population as small as Glenwood, a grocery store is not that feasible, but to empower a corner store market to have uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and improve uh, their, their offerings uh, was a, a very good plan B for the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that was noted in, um, in one of the other areas, business and commerce, that that's still a challenge to get businesses to locate there and, and start up, you know, open up shop. Yeah, there, there, there's two things that we, we didn't see significant change, and that is um, the perceptions of safety. Now, one of the USI faculty did note that the, the neighborhood reported it's relatively safe already, so maybe that's why we didn't see the needle move that much. And the other is bus- this whole idea of, of improving the local businesses. So those are two areas that obviously fell, fall well outside of Habitat's mission, and that's why we feel so strongly that another organization that has uh, more flexibility and um, really competency in those areas need to take take up this effort and pursue change in those areas. What do you think it takes for a neighborhood that's, you know, not an it neighborhood in a city to attract business uh, investment? Um, I personally think it has to start with philanthropy. People have to care enough to invest, and you're not going to, you're likely philanthropy has to go first to stabilize the market or to incent uh, the regular market to come in and take over. Uh, so so I, I would look in that direction. But that's my personal opinion, and I'm certainly not an expert in that area. Mm-hmm. But but it does seem like maybe that you need something to prime the pump is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what about this area of clean and green? I mean, this has a lot to do, which probably ties into the, the well-being as well, because it has to do with how usable the space is and, mm-hmm. and just how nice it is to be out and about in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say the the biggest win for that goal was the editing of the uh, Greenway Trail and then the improvements on Sweetser Avenue. The residents during the design charrette wanted to see a simple decent boulevard down Sweetser Avenue which is sort of the main street of Glenwood and we found a win-win and and um, they did infrastructure improvement along that street and then they built the southern side um, they added more grass area, and then there's supposed to be some landscaping that goes in there. And it really makes it pretty out there. Uh, so c- clean and green, and then the, <clears throat> the way I understand it is that extra green space, instead of it being pavement, uh, really helps with, with um, rainfall, being able to kind of percolate through the ground sure. instead of on concrete. Right, so you don't get the, the flash flooding and, and right. downpours and so forth. Um, how do you think, you know, Evansville has many neighborhoods. Glenwood's just one of them. Um, how do you think addressing some of the isu- these issues in a, in a narrow geographic area impacts the, the broader city? That's a good question. Um, the way I'm going to answer that may not be the direction you're headed, but um, Adrian Brooks said something to me when I first took my job at Habitat, and I'll never forget Pastor. it. Yeah, Pastor uh, Adrian Brooks. He he said, you know, you really have to focus your effort and chunk it down. And that's what Glenwood was about, is to chunk this down into a manageable piece and see if we can achieve something here. And then let's do it again somewhere else. So 
the core center city is so vital to our broader community. I would even say our region. We have to have a strong core. Um, so this work is indeed, I mean, should be a priority for everyone to, to make sure we have stable neighborhoods, vibrant neighborhoods in our downtown area. So. You know, a lot of nonprofits were involved with this project. What kind of buy-in did you have from city government? Uh, there was a tremendous amount of buy-in from city government, and I, I think that is transferred into the new administration as far as this idea of um, community, comprehensive community development based on the assets of the neighborhood, really listening to the neighbors. Um, and at the same time, understanding that there has to be uh, people with influence and resources to come alongside neighborhood residents to make some of the things they hope to see happen, happen. What do you take away from all of this? I mean, you, this is this five-year report that you have in hand is an encouraging document. Uh, mm -hmm. It suggests that there have been many successes in this area. Um, what do you take? What's the biggest takeaway for you? Uh, wow, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it worked, but uh, it's definitely not short term and a short term effort. We have to be vigilant and being strategic and collaborative and doing things a smart way. And we have to keep pushing ourselves to do it better the next time. So I'll keep pushing people to let's stay in this game and uh, let's see something better happen the next time we try to work together. And is there a, a, a date, a, a closure date for the Glenwood Community Development Initiative, or is it an open-ended thing? Um, our leadership there as the, as the lead convener it has ended, and we will continue to build there as our families uh, that, are, that are buying Habitat houses choose to live there. Now, I would advocate that the work really never ends. The, there always has to be leadership in a community, in a neighborhood, and we always have to have something to strive for to be better than we were yesterday. Um, so it will never end. <laughs> <laughs> Ongoing, but you're also uh, moving on also to start doing this kind of work in other, in other neighborhoods as well. Indeed, yes. Piece by piece. Yes. Lori Reed is the Executive Director of Habitat for Humanity of Evansville. Thank you so much for your time and for telling this story. Thank you. You're listening to The Trend. I'm Micah Schweitzer. And I'm Tony Voss. And this week in the B segment, Scott Hutchison is back with The Hungry Hoosier and a desire to get outside and eat. Picnics. Most people either love them or hate them. In my lifetime, I've spent time in both camps. As a kid, I thought picnics were great fun. My stepfather was a minister, and we had some really big church picnics that involved our entire congregation of 200-plus. These events would start at about 11.30 a.m. on a Saturday and continue until dark 30, which meant a half hour or so after the sun went down. We would eat, of course, and play volleyball and horseshoes and then kick the can at dusk. As I got a little older, my love of picnics began to wane. In high school, I thought they were pretty lame, actually. In college, however, my interest peaked again when I discovered that picnics could be used as a means of romancing the ladies. I went to college in Chattanooga, which sits at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, and there were plenty of great spots for picnicking. Packing a wicker picnic basket with a crusty loaf of French bread, some good cheeses, fruit, something chocolate, and a nice bottle of wine is a pretty good recipe for romance. After college, and after I got the girl, I became less of a picnic fan. I worried about foodborne illness. I complained about the bugs and the heat, and I disliked sitting on the ground or eating off my lap. Then came parenthood, and I found myself right back in picnic mode. 
Back when they were little guys, my boys ate nearly every warm-weather meal on the front porch, sitting crisscross applesauce while they devoured their PB&Js. Other time, we'd pack a basket along with a frisbee or soccer ball and head to the park near our home. The roots of picnics go way back. The term is French in origin and was first used in 1692 and then shows up in English in 1748. These early references don't really have anything to do with dining outside until it began being used to describe hunting feasts, country banquets, and garden parties. There are many examples of picnics in the literature of Dickens and Jane Austen and others, as well as the paintings of Monet, Renoir, and Cezanne. My cookbook collection includes some of Monet's cooking journals, and he goes to great detail to describe the preparations that went into his elaborate picnics. Now, my picnic fare is probably not up to Monet's standards, but I do have a few favorites that I like to prepare. One is a very simple barbecue chicken salad that can be made with leftover chicken, a rotisserie chicken you pick up at the grocery store, or some chicken breast you grill specifically for this dish. To make this recipe, you dice up two pounds of chicken, red onion, a red bell pepper, and then mix it a dressing made of your favorite barbecue sauce, mayonnaise, and Worcestershire. You can get the full recipe on the website. This chicken salad is great served just on its own, or you can load it into a pita or, of course, make a sandwich. I figure I only have a couple more years before my kids will outgrow their love of family picnics, and then if they're like me, when they get interested again, it'll be to try to impress a date, and they won't want their dad around. So until then, I'm going to have as many picnics with them as I can. I'm on the Scott Hutchison works in economic and community development for Purdue University and writes about food, family, and community for newspapers, magazines, radio, and TV. The Hungry Hoosier is a production of WBAA Radio in West Lafayette, and on the Trends Facebook page right now, you'll find Scott's recipe for barbecue chicken salad and, I promise, a whole lot less music by Fred Durst protégés. I'm Tony Voss. And I'm Micah Schweitzer. You're listening to The Trend. Our next guest is a nurse practitioner. She works for a company called MD2U, as in the doctor comes to you. Right up front on the company's website, it says in bold type that the company, and this is a quote, actually makes house calls. Jessica McLeod is here to explain this new old trend in healthcare. Welcome to the trend. Thank you, Micah. And, uh, are house calls so uncommon that the the company has to use the word actually on its website? I do think that house calls house calls are fairly uncommon. You do see them occasionally, uh, but for many people for whom it's difficult to get out of their home, um, the option to get to a clinic is medical transportation. Is uh, might be family members, a wheelchair, and a long slow trip to the doctor's office. And uh, you actually carry a black bag with you, like one might see in an episode of Downton Abbey or something, right? <laughs> I do. I do, in fact, carry a black bag. Uh, I've got my tools in it. My most important tool is my stethoscope. Uh, but I have other higher-tech equipment where I can take a person's blood sugar or even check their anticoagulation level in their home. So this is basically... Like like it, one sees, you know, in in old TV shows where the doctor, or in this case a nurse practitioner, shows up, rings the doorbell, comes in, and you have all the things that would happen at the doctor's office happen in your living room. 
I will say I have most of the things that happen in the doctor's office. So it is indeed a, a primary care visit in the home of the patient. They don't have to do anything but be able to answer their door. And some of my patients can't even do that. They just yell, come in. Uh, there are certain advanced things or things that need to be done rather quickly that I perhaps can't do it. I won't say it's a full, uh, complete service. For example, um, you know, I, I typically don't uh, do any type of minor surgeries in the home. Sure. That wouldn't be a good idea. <laughs> Things that I used to do in an office setting. Uh, but for a general primary care visit, it is the same thing, except in the comfort of a person's home. I was surprised to see you can even do x-rays. We do. And I am not actually the person doing those x-rays. We contract with a mobile diagnostic company who will come to a patient's home, do x-rays, ultrasounds. Uh, I've even ordered an echocardiogram in a patient's home. And that was a really fascinating and interesting thing that could be done in the in the person's mm. home. They hadn't been able to get to their cardiologist in four years. And I spoke to the cardiologist and asked about a new murmur that the patient had that I heard during their exam. And the cardiologist said, yes, I would love to get an echocardiogram, Jessica, but propose to me how you'll make that happen. And I said, that's the beauty of this new service. It's coming full circle and technology is really going back to the home. Interesting. So with all the advances we have, we can now go back to practicing medicine the way it was practiced 50 years ago. It is definitely an old model with a new twist. Uh, a lot of what I do is is what you'd call old medicine. I'm really relying on assessment skills, on conversations with patients. But with newer technology, mobile technology, some of those uh, more advanced procedures can be done in the home. That's an interesting thing you bring up, this, this assessment through conversation and so forth, because... Um, if one goes to the doctor, one will often experience this, and this has been talked about uh, in many forums, how impersonal medicine has become and how uh, crowded doctors' schedules has, have become, where they're seeing so many patients uh, in the course of a day, and they even have quotas for how many patients they need to see in the course of a day. And of course, that cuts way back on the actual interaction that you have with the doctor. Yes, primary care panels are becoming just huge. Uh, I worked in primary care for 10 years in an office setting uh, with people with new health care legislation and people entering into the rosters of primary care. Uh, doctors have a lot of patients to see in a day, and the office setting can be very busy. This is a different model. I have a limited number of patients who I care for. What that means for me is I can spend a great deal of time with people, and these are people who need my time. They need me to sit down and talk with them, not just about their medications or their health, but other factors that influence their health as well. Like what? Nutrition. Are they eating? What are they eating? Can they get to the grocery store? Uh, has their grandson forgotten to come visit them this week to get them their food? Um, do they have someone looking in on them every day? Do they have the financial resources to get what they need? So it sounds like relationship is really uh, central, and one doesn't often think of that. Healthcare is a service; it's technology; it's you know, take this blue pill. But you're talking about relationships here. Absolutely, um, I generally spend about an hour with each patient, and that relationship is so important. I saw some of this in the doctor's office where I worked before. Mm -hmm. um, patients would 
come to the office on their best behavior. You ask, are you taking your medication? Of course I'm taking my medication. Then when you become a guest in someone's home and you say, are you taking their medication? I think they feel less threatened to tell you the truth. No, I'm not taking my medication. Or you have access to look at their pillbox. If there's someone who is not intentionally not taking their medication, but uh, perhaps they have some forgetfulness, the onset of dementia, and they tell me, yes, Jessica, I'm taking my medication, but I can lo actually look at their bottle and say, this is still full. And so then we can have a discussion about how to enable that patient to actually uh, complete what we prescribe for them. So you're able to gather whole new sets of information that one just doesn't have access to when someone comes into a clinic. I would agree. And where that starts is when I open the door. Um, I've been in some of the most beautiful homes, and I've been in some of the worst situations I could imagine. And I never, you couldn't see that in an office. You couldn't see if someone's able to clean or if their house is so cluttered that they can't make it around and they're falling. Um, or if there are some huge safety issues like holes in the walls or infestations of bugs. And I assume you're not, you're not talking in the theoretical here. No, this is very concrete. <laughs> wow. It, it makes it sound uh, like this offers a more holistic approach to health, or, or at least in the sense that one recognizes that health is part of one's entire life and not just uh, one little slice that you can, you can deal with uh, uh, separately from the rest of one's life. Yes, and I think um, at all healthcare providers, whether it's physicians or nurse practitioners or nurses or therapists or social workers, we all like to think that we look at patients holistically, and we really do try. But sometimes in an office setting, when the pace is so fast, it's the priority to focus on some of that clinical data. You look at their blood count, you look at their blood pressure, and you address that. This is a much more holistic way to, to look at a patient. And who are these patients that you're seeing? I mean, who qualify? Because you pro presumably you couldn't come to my house because I'm mobile and, and whatever else. That's right? right. This is a service in which the patient needs to be homebound or home limited. So it's not that the patient can never go outside their home, but it needs to be a taxing effort for them to do so. That may be a transportation issue. I have patients who don't have any family members who don't drive, who rely on public transportation to get to an office visit. Um, public transportation is a wonderful thing, but there's a lot of waiting involved with it. And if you're 92 years old and you're waiting two hours for the public transport, go to the office setting, you might be there for an hour, and then you're waiting two hours in the lobby for a ride home, that's a really, that's a really difficult thing to ask an elderly person to do. Any of us would be wiped out after a five-hour wait to, for an office visit. So you need to be homebound or home limited to have this service. So typically my patients are elderly or disabled. Okay, and so yeah, basically people who are, who are unable to get out, they qualify then to have insurance cover this service. This is just like going to the doctor for them, they pay a copay. That's correct. Uh, MD2U, the company that I work for, accepts all, well, most major insurances, Medicare, Medicaid, um, we, we take insurances or cash pay just like any doctor's office would. We're talking about house calls right now on The Trend, and we'll have more after a break. Stay with us.
You're with The Trend on 88.3 WNIN and WNIN.org. Support comes from Morton Solar, a renewable energy solution provider for residential, commercial, governmental, and utility clients wanting to reduce electricity bills and lessen the carbon footprint. Located in Evansville, Indiana, Morton Solar provides consultation, engineering, and design, and installation for projects throughout the tri-state area. Information on Facebook or at 812-402-0900. Welcome back. I'm Micah Schweitzer. We're talking with nurse practitioner Jessica McLeod. She works for a company called MD2U, which brings home health care to your home. Uh, and hearing what you've said in the first half of our conversation here, um, the word efficiency is coming to mind. And it sounds like this is much more efficient for somebody for whom it might be a, a full day excursion to go to the doctor. But is it more efficient uh, from a medical perspective? standpoint. I mean, if you can see 20 people in a day versus you spending an hour with a limited number of patients, um, you're not going to see 20 people in a day. Uh, From a healthcare standpoint, is this more efficient? It is certainly more efficient for the patient. Um, It is not as efficient for a provider. So no, I can't see 25 people a day. I can see a limited number of people. What I do in that amount of time is I provide a high quality of care, comprehensive. This model is really important as the baby boomers are aging and as Medicare is becoming strapped for money. We're going to have a lot of boomers aging and it is much less expensive for our system to pay for a nurse practitioner to enter a home, care for a patient in a comprehensive way, be responsive to that a limited number of patients rather than having that patient, um, because they're unable to get to an office setting, call an ambulance or head to the hospital for a problem which could have been addressed the week before in a very simple fashion. I see. So because it sounds much more expensive, sort of from a, a spreadsheet mentality, to have somebody drive to someone's home, spend an hour with them, drive somewhere else uh, from you know, from that spreadsheet dollars and cents perspective, it doesn't sound cheaper to me. But what you're saying is that if you can do preventive care, that's where you make up the the difference. Right. If you look at overall cost and, and at a glance, and I've had questions like that, is Medicare really going to pay for you to come to see me twice a month? And the answer is yes, because Medicare would much rather pay for uh, a nurse practitioner or physician, we do have two physicians who work with, with the company, a physician visit, then an ambulance ride. The cost surrounding an ambulance ride, and by that I don't mean simply the ambulance ride, but the care that occurs after that ambulance the ride. The emergency room, the yeah, right. ICU, The labs, yeah. the ICU, a hospitalization is around $23,000 when an elderly person calls for an ambulance. Single trip into the hospital, $23,000. The average associated cost with an emergent call, ambulance ride, perhaps ER, perhaps admission. It's really expensive. It's much less so uh, 
for me to go there and spend an hour with a patient. And you talked about efficiency too. In this model, which is really uh, has a large presence in Louisville, they work in teams, the nurse practitioners there. What ends up happening is that a nurse, single nurse practitioner might have one or two sites at which she stays for the majority of the week, whether that's an assisted living, a housing authority, building. And so efficiency becomes much better when teams of nurse practitioners work together because you might have one person. You, you're not driving anywhere. Yeah, you may be seeing people in density. Uh, uh, correct. Yeah. yeah. And you cover, and this company, which is based in Louisville, um, has expanded now to a number of other areas, including southern Indiana, southwestern Indiana. You cover Henderson, Evansville, and Owensboro. That's right. Why uh, nurse practitioners? You said there are only two physicians. The medical doctor who began this company, J. Michael Benfield, he, his initial vision was to have physicians do the house calls. That's why it's called MD2U, which is a little bit of a misnomer, because most of the providers are nurse practitioners. It didn't take off in the way that, that he thought it might. Um, and in my personal opinion, is I think it's that social visit. It's that lengthy visit. It's talking with daughters. It's... Uh, uh, it's um, talking to the patient about their fears and their anxieties, it's important to have the medical piece of it, the data collection, the good assessment. That is, that is extremely important. It's something that nurse practitioners do well. But what they also do is sit down with a patient and talk about their son that's just been uh, incarcerated, and that's the reason for the visit. It's the anxiety. The shortness of breath is because of the anxiety rather than a, a physiologic problem. So it sounds like there's almost a different psychology for physicians and, and uh, nurse practitioners. And there's so much overlap between what physicians and NPs do. Um, but what nurse practitioners do, because their first training was as nurses, they do all that nursing stuff. Mm -hmm. they, they studied psychology. They studied religion. They studied um, communication when they went to nursing school. And it's a really good fit in this model. Interesting. So the, so the company starts and doesn't get off the ground with physicians. This tweak is made to do nurse practitioners, and, and now it's a rapidly growing uh, company. It's added numerous staff in Louisville over the past, uh, just in the past year or two. Um, what accounts for this kind of growth other than now finding a model that works? I think the, the working model is important, but also there's a huge need. Uh, the, the gap is there. There are five million homebound seniors in our nation, and only 100,000 of those people have someone who will come visit them in the home, a, a provider, a medical provider. So the need is there, hence the rapid growth. How much more expansive do you think home health care visits could or should become in your, in your opinion? In my opinion, I think this is going to continue to grow rapidly. MDTU has now, uh, now has a presence in seven states with 72 nurse practitioners, and they're, they're looking to expand. Um, I think this is a good thing. Of course, we're never going to, and we shouldn't get away from office visits. There are things that you can do in the office that you can't do in the home. We're never going to prevent every hospitalization or ER visit, but we can really make an, a difference in the health of these patients and to our healthcare system. Jessica McLeod is a nurse practitioner with MD2U, and uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fun thank talking you. with you. You're listening to The Trend. The Arts Notebook is just ahead.
You're with The Trend on WNIN.org and 88.3 WNIN-FM. Support for the programming today comes from Evansville Day School. Preparing for college, preparing for life for more than 60 years. Now enrolling junior pre-K through grade 12. Information online at evansvilledayschool.org. Listening to the trend, we turn now to our regular arts correspondent, Courier and Press writer Roger McBain. He's here for the Arts Notebook. Hi, Roger. Good afternoon. And Roger, the Evansville Philharmonic's final Pops concert has a sci-fi theme, and uh, as part of that, it brings in one of the genre's stars. Yeah, that's not how we've thought of him over the years uh, for a long time. Ron Glass is an Evansville native, University of Evansville graduate who uh, many of us remember from the television series Barney Miller from the late 70s and into the early 80s, I mm-hmm. believe. Um, and I've been hearing about him in that context for years. But in this century, he uh, played Shepard Book in Firefly, a short, shorter-lived television series, science fiction television series, Space Cowboys, basically. And became a cult favorite, and they made a movie in in 2005 called Serenity. So he's coming back to uh, serve as MC for this production, and they're going to have some members of the 501st Legion and the Rebel Legion of Star Wars. Uh, I, I guess not reenactors, but cos- <laughs> <Right>. costumed <Yeah. laughs> costumed characters, and and the orchestra and the uh, and the maestro might get in on that too. All right, a wild show. That'll uh, be uh, Saturday and Saturday evening and Sunday afternoon okay. in the Victory. Great, great. And uh, the outdoor music scene gets underway this weekend um, in Newburgh with the Newburgh Wine, Art, and Jazz Festival. Yeah, there will be, um, I think, uh, uh, close to a half a dozen jazz bands playing out there tomorrow. Uh, people from 14 Indiana wineries, uh, they're representing their wines. And there'll be an art show, and that's taking place tonight and then tomorrow uh, out in Newburgh. And there's more live music happening. Um, this concert in New Harmony, and uh, these this group is no stranger to New Harmony. Stacy Earl and Mark Stewart are a couple from Tennessee. Uh, they play acoustic music. They play blues, pop, country, rock, do a lot of house concerts and things like that. And they're coming back for the fifth time today, 7.30 p.m., at the Events of Harmony, formerly known as the Harmony House um, Movie Theater there on Main Street. Okay, so a new use for that space. Yeah, they seem to have a, uh, be using it for more and more live things now. That's great. That's great. Um, now, also in New Harmony and uh, just down the block, actually, from that space is a, another one of these uh, series of very interesting-sounding exhibits opening at the Gallery of Contemporary Art. I feel like we talk about one every few months, and they're always they're always very compelling. Yeah, and it's another conceptual art piece uh, where the idea is, is core to everything in it. It's actually a multimedia installation. Uh, it's called 
progression. It's P-R and they, uh, then aggression. Mm. Uh, supposed to be a reference to progression, but aggressive elements. It's a multimedia uh, show that deals with respiration, oxidation, liquidation, sedimentation, and growth. And these are all ways to focus on the issue of time, how we measure time. Um, right. The artist uh, has, has said that clocks and, and stopwatches and all this kind of stuff is, is an artificial way to do it. And so he's trying to use uh, more organic ways to tell time. I think he, he's kind of arguing that, that time has, has tyrannized us uh, with uh, the, the minutes, the hours, you know, punching in, punching out, measuring our lives out and these things. And he wants us to look at uh, measuring things in other ways, in breath, or in holding your breath and manipulating the time. Yeah, uh, that video sounds very interesting. People holding their breath as long as they can. Yeah, and he he's extended it uh, vi with the video as well uh, digitally. But he says people will, it's going to be projected in the windows of the gallery, one of the windows, so passers-by will see it. And when he's done this before, he said people, he'll notice and people will stop, the ones who stop and look at it, will start holding their breath too. And he said, you almost can't help it. He said, even he can't help holding his breath when he does it. He, he took videos of people holding their breath for as long as they could. Then they let it out and then uh -huh. take it in. They did it three times in succession. And so it's uh, it gets people involved. Wow. Yeah. Thinking about time. Uh, and he's even got some wheat grass growing and he's got dripping glue forming glue stalactites. Yeah, some frozen things that will drip. And he's the rhythm of the drips changes by the number of people that gather around and the heat they put off. It, it picks up the cadence of these drips hitting the floor and these marks that they make on the floor, the rust patterns that develop over time uh, from these things. Interesting. Well, I'm going to throw out my alarm clock and start using rust as my, <laughs> my new clock. Uh, of course, you know, we're ruled by the clock here in radio. So we have to go on to uh, what's happening here in Evansville with the Evansville Museum, and a Roman god is making a return. The Vulcan, the uh, nine and a half foot tall rolled, they say zinc. I'm still not sure about that, but it's a statue made of some kind of rolled metal over a framework, like the, much like the Statue of Liberty is, uh, that once stood atop the Heilman Plow Works in 1880s. Since then, it's been moved about five times, most recently to the old courthouse basement. And last year, it came to the Evansville Museum, where Bob Sazadny, an Oakland City artist, uh, restored some of the damage that had been done to this figure over the years. But he's a, he's a nine and a half foot tall Vulcan standing next to an anvil, hand, one hand rested on a big hammer and the other one holding his leather apron, kind of gazing off into the distance. And that will be unveiled Wednesday in its new home in the Evansville Museum in the history uh, section. And also next week, um, the Evansville Museum has loaned the Willard Library some 11th to 14th century Christian illuminated manuscripts, and there's an upcoming lecture that shows a darker side to these works. Karen Tonnenbaum, who I, I think her name means Christmas tree in German, yes, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> is a librarian and a historian and art historian who uh, is fascinated with these things and has studied them for years. She'll give a talk Thursday at noon 
talking about the visual references to anti-Semitism in, in both Christian and Jewish um, illuminated manuscripts from the 14th through the 17th century in Europe. And finally, a second annual Sculpt EVV outdoor sculpture exhibition is planned for this year, and there's an opportunity for teenagers to become apprentices. They are looking for uh, people 14 to 19 years old who live in the Fourth Ward to serve as paid apprentices two Saturdays uh, for the Great Street Makeover. And that will be something where they'll create some small, uh, working with the University of Southern Indiana students and professors, I think, they will make some small public sculptures that will go up in conjunction with the big Sculpt EVV outdoor sculpture exhibition that will open June 15th. Details on all of this and more uh, in the Courier and Press in the uh, print editions Thursday and Sunday and also at CourierPress.com. Roger McBain covers the arts for the Courier and Press, and he's here every week. Thanks, Roger. Thank you. Next week, as school ends, medical professionals weigh in on how to keep the kids fit during the summer doldrums. And we'll hear about new technology at the Evansville Museum. You can hear past episodes and get in touch with the show online at WNIN.org. Just click on The Trend. And while you're there, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. The Trend is a production of WNIN in collaboration with the Evansville Courier and Press. Our producers are Ryan Reynolds and Tony Voss. He also engineers the show. The theme music was written by Jeffrey Osman. I'm Micah Schweitzer, and we'll talk again next week. This is WNIN-FM, Evansville, Henderson, and Owensboro.